Dan, welcome to our Naked Truth podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. We are very excited to interview you. I had the pleasure of reading your book. It's a, it's a big one, huh? It's 400 pages. Like, it's, I feel bad putting you through that. <laughs> no, it's a great read. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, so Dan's book is called Backpack to Rucksack, and I, I'm sorry if I can't pronounce it right. <laughs> No, that's right. Rucksack. Okay. Dan, tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us how you came to write this wonderful book. Sure. Well, I'm, again, thank you so much for the the compliment there. Um, I left the army after three and a half years. Uh, I was a combat engineer. I got out um, roughly less than a year ago. And essentially the reason I wrote this book was simply to decompress from uh, some thoughts that I was stuck in, some feeling states that I was stuck in. Um, I had a soldier in my platoon who survived his suicide attempt. And um, that really, really impacted me. You know, I, I spoke to his mother over the phone and let let her know that we were going to get him help. And, you know, he's alive today. Um, and I'm, I'm lucky for that because uh, I know a lot of people have not, um, have experienced, you know, actual death from suicide, right? And so... Uh, Cody wrote the introduction to the book as a means of giving hope to those who are struggling with mental health, um, who feel isolated. And uh, on a more somber note, my friend Austin wrote the introduction to the book. And this is almost unfathomable. Uh, since Afghanistan, he's had 13 uh, men from his unit commit suicide. And um, it's just, un it's unreal to even say that, you know, a double digit number. Um, it's tragic. 12 of them killed themselves um, prior to me writing this book. After I started the book, after I published it, he called me and said, hey, number 13 uh, killed himself. And so uh, that's so heavy. And I, you know, I love the soldiers. I, I love the people that I served with. And I thought there's got to be something that I can do, you know, as an individual. And there's so many brilliant people out there who care so much about the military, about veterans, mental health. Um, and, and yet at the same time we can do more, right. And I need to do my part. Um, and I, I wrote this book as a way of coming to terms with the, the sort of gray area of leadership and mental health, because especially in warfare, um, you know, where violence is a part of the job, right. Lethality is a part of the job. First responders, um, know this well too, you know, of all different types. Um, how do you keep somebody in that hypervigilant mindset, right? Where they're situationally aware all the time and yet at the same time, give them opportunity to have self-care, give them opportunity to downregulate their nervous system and to make objective decisions. So I wrote this book because I was stuck in this kind of whirlpool of what was subjective and what was objective, right? Um, what was real and what was my emotionality? What was my hangups that impacted the job and leadership and all of that. And, um, I sprinkled some, um, some peer reviewed uh, journal publications throughout this book to just kind of flex my, my master's psychology muscles that, you know, when our professors told us, uh, don't just give us your opinion, but back it up with scientific fact. And there are scientific, you know, there's scientific data that definitely not just suggests, but that absolutely states that being nice to other people, being kind to other people, it has neurophysiological impacts that are we should know about. It's not just about 
warm and fuzzy feelings. This is about the hard science of treating people well to keep their brains healthy. So what do you think leads people? We talked about it. You know, I, I called him and because look, you know, he's, he struggled with his own demons, right? And there's, you know, a fear that I'd lose him as well, that I'd call his phone and he wouldn't pick up. You know what I mean? And I asked him, I said, what, what do you think caused that? Um, and, I, you know, I've struggled with my own stuff as well. Um, so I kind of had an idea. But, you know, he told me, he's like, look, I don't know. They, I guess they all had their reasons. You know, he, he, it was almost like a non-judgmental stance, right? Of how can we judge somebody who's stuck in a situation? And so I, I did some research on this. Um, and just to get super sciencey about it. There's a portion of the brain, it works with many other parts of our brain, but it's called the, the anterior cingulate. Um, and I believe it's the ACC, anterior cingulate cortex. And it helps us understand time, meaning that time is transient. You know, a, a second is different than a minute, different than an hour, um, different than a day. And um, I read that with, um, I can post this on my website too, because I'd like to put this out there. There's functional MRI studies that show those who are struggling with depression and suicidality have reduced blood flow to the anterior cingulate, meaning they lose track of time. They believe that a situation of feeling state, a state, um, an affect, if you will, is indefinite. There's no transience to it. And when that sets in, as the prefrontal cortex shuts off, um, or at least it kind of loops, it just does this death loop of, I'm stuck in this situation, there's no way I'm going to get get out. Um, it's forever. And so what we say suicide is in the military, we would warn you know our soldiers, um, it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And um, the only thing that we can do to get people out of this, from what I understand, is to ground them back into their body to get them back into a present time, right? So that way they understand there's a past, present, and future. And there's always, always hope that the future will be brighter, no matter what the circumstance. And your book is so awesome. Uh, it talks about leadership in the military, and it does talk about um, how do we work with soldiers? How do we prevent those bigger issues? I mean, thank you again for writing this book and being inspired to do that. Unfortunately, so many people died, but but maybe this is going to help other people not go that you know, route. And it's for them, right? It's it's for It's because of the lives that were lost, and I appreciate you saying that. If, if these men and women are hurting themselves, are killing themselves, then we have to speak up on their behalf. Because, you know, I, I had so many people I served with who were combat veterans. I've never been combat deployed, but I worked with several who were. And when I talked to them about my own struggles with anxiety, my own issues with um, some issues that happened in childhood, where in jujitsu, I started having flashbacks on the mats. Um, because it had to do with physical abuse. And so I was um, reminded of those feeling states. And I, I, would, I would speak about this with some combat veterans. And I told them about you know, the, the constriction of my chest and the, hype, the um, upper respiratory, like you know, rapid breathing and uh, a tight tightness in my stomach, ruminating thoughts day and night. And I, I had them tell me, which was amazing. Some of them opened up to me and said, you know, you've described what I've felt in my body since Iraq, since Afghanistan. And I've never told anyone this. I've never told a therapist. I've never told my wife. Um, and, you know, I, 
they would ask me like, Hey, can I talk to you more about what I'm feeling about some of the stuff that I think about at night before I go to bed? You know, the people who've died in front of me, the, the, the things that I've seen. Right. And it just, I felt compelled to share as much love with them as possible to say, you're worth, you're worth it. You're worth mental health and figuring out what's going on. Your marriage, your children deserve that. Um, you deserve that, right? To have that peace of mind because the hell that they've been through in war is it's so hard to describe, you know, as they tell me these stories of things that they've seen, it's not just the variables of war being horrible. It's about the leadership dynamics that could have hurt them as well. Interpersonal dynamics, things at home, just compounding their, the neurocircuitry in their brain, right? Is just piled up with all of this data, all of this emotion that they have to feel, right? And they bottle it up because they need to compartmentalize and not let it bleed out into work. But then they don't have a pressure valve to release that. And I've had friends who struggle, still struggle with suicidality. And on top of that, I've had friends who've had homicidal thoughts as well. They haven't done it, but they came close a few times. And it was because after war, they talk about how the things that they've seen, the dead bodies, right? Um, I'm sorry to, you know, I don't want to be triggering to those who are listening, but um, they would be very explicit with me on things that they saw. And when they come back, they're so desensitized to, to death, right? And all of that um, bloodshed and everything. And so if somebody crosses them and they feel they're cornered, they're, they could snap, right? Um, and so I, I just realized as a leader in the military, it's so important not to push people, to do everything we can to be kind to them, still tactical, still efficient, still mission driven, totally, right? We have to be the ones who win. The US has to win. Um, I believe we're the greatest country in the world. I believe we have a good heart as a nation. But what's important is to give our troops the same love and, and care that we would give um, to anybody else. They're not less human than anyone else. Um, and I don't want to say treat them like, like our kids or treat them like children, but it was so hard. It's so hard not to see those you're leading as your kids, because as a leader, and I'm sorry, I'm rambling so much, but you know, we're, we're borrowing them from parents, right? And that we have to steward their lives. Well, I can't give a, a not well thought out decision and risk somebody else's life because then I'm in my mind, I'm responsible to their mother and father. Why did you get my kid in that situation? or their, their husband or their wife or whoever it is. Right. Um, and so it, it just drove me to realize leadership involves us as leaders being mentally healthy. So we don't compound the issues that others may have under us. And we can maybe show them some tools, some psychological toolkits to decompress and to get out of that. I, and I think, you know, your book goes across all professions. How do we lead? How do we become leaders that inspire other people? So I believe what it has to do with is the primal brain. I believe that the tonality of our voice, the, the sub, you know how they say 90% of what we say is nonverbal, right? Um, as, as amazing as we are, you know, in, in the 20, what is it? 21st century, right? Uh, we still have a very 
basic um, brainstem that operates and that the vagus nerve, right? The visceral gut reaction we get from someone is powerful. We know when somebody's a threat to us. We know when somebody is condescending to us. We know when someone's being manipulative, our gut feels it. It's actually our prefrontal cortex that then kind of downplays that and says, well, they're not that toxic or I'm just being sensitive or whatever excuses we make. But our gut reaction is usually correct because by like a few nanoseconds, the wiring from the vagus nerve to our brainstem, because it is geared for survival, right? Is, is just a few nanoseconds or milliseconds faster than our prefrontal cortex, meaning we'll feel what's going on before we understand it in our higher mind. So being a leader that's aware of that, what that looks like, you don't condescend to people. You don't speak down to them. You don't, um, make them feel trapped by creating a work culture in which they feel their mistakes are going to be you know held over their head where they feel like they're going to be shamed shame is a powerful biological mechanism and we see it in so many different um you know animal uh, group groups as well different species but humans it's amazing to me how shame um, is used by leaders to make people feel inadequate and keep them in a mindset where once I identify you as a shameful person, then you're stuck with that, right? That's horrible because you don't label someone. Don't, you don't put those labels on somebody, but rather what I, what I call, um, what I research as a transformational leader is somebody who's able to inspire those they lead to rise up in, in order to attain a new level of growth. You basically want to give them enrichment. Um, let them know that I don't ever want you to be stuck if you're under me. I want you to grow because it's not just me being selfless. It's I'll be honest, it is it, there there can be a selfish motive behind that because if if I'm your leader and you grow under me, you're going to make our group stronger. And if it gets to a point where you leave because you become that great where you need to go start your own thing, then I need to have an abundance mindset that there will be more people coming in, not a scarcity mindset where I say I have to do everything I can to cut your legs from under you so you don't rise up and leave because I need you. That's that's horrible. That's a horrible way to lead. But there are there are people who lead like that. And again, it's that visceral reaction where like the soldiers I worked with, they knew who was on their side and who was not on their side. They could feel it. And um, it just proved to me how powerful the subconscious mind is and especially just our, our primal instincts and readouts, our intuition, um, based on, you know, not just subconscious markers, I'd say nonverbals. And, uh, again, that, that kind of primal, the primal coding of how we communicate with one another. And I think that actually has a lot to do with, um, why people feel stuck, to be honest. We talk about intuition and gut feelings a lot on the podcast. And I'm curious if you ever had that conversation with some of the people that you were leading and what that would, or what that looked like. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was very close to, to the soldiers and, and, um, I had a lot of friends who, uh, started kind of consulting with me on private discussions about what's going on in their lives, anger issues, marital woes, um, nightmares, flashbacks. And, you know, I would always tell them your gut, your gut is right that there's something off in your life. And when your brain is, is it's flooding, right? The brain is flooding with emotions. 
So what I would try to validate, validate them as much as possible in the sense that um, they've experienced a lot in, in life, whether it was in war or whether it was childhood, adverse childhood um, experiences, right? Aces. And um, I would let them, I would basically give them a roadmap as simple, as simply as I could. Um, kind of how when I just spoke with you about the primal, right? The vagus nerve and all of that. And what was so cool was their eyes would light up. You know, I would see their posture change. I would see that what they call the aha moment where it, it completely validated their, the judgment that they were making on life, but they were kind of too afraid to admit, or it was, you know, an inconvenient truth about whatever dynamic they're struggling with. And that was so cool for me to see that. Cause that to me is a sense of showing love to somebody that's showing you care. You're offering them that freedom to understand the labyrinth of their own mind. And we all have a different labyrinth. We all have a different, you know, hang up we, because of attachment disorders or attachment issues with parenting with family of origin through through anything that we've experienced in life you know the world is a hard place to be in for sure um but the point is we understand what i call like our flavor of crazy like we each have our own and to give someone that that roadmap is so cool and that's why i love the concept of giving people psychological toolkits whether it's breathing right um breathing um modalities that they can use um journaling whether it's specific prompts, by the way, or, or meditative visualizations, there's so many ways to get people into their, into their mind to tap into that. Um, but what's so key is to continually support them. It's not a one and done. This is a relationship thing. Um, they need to know they're supported. And when things get crazy, when things get tough and scary because of things that start bubbling up, um, it, it's important that they have professionals to reach out to and at the very least friends who are willing to hear them out. But if it gets to a point where they're stuck, um, cause that happened to me at one point, I, I had to go to a therapist and, and get some stuff out. And I had no idea what was locked in my body and memories, um, psychosomatic markers, but holy smokes, uh, it's a deep, it's a deep rabbit hole, you know, recovery, yes. mental health, deep rabbit hole. Did you find a good therapist? Yeah, he got me out of a flashback. I was, um, it was after jujitsu, I felt um, some darkness setting in and I, I heard some, I had some thoughts coming up and, and it was just this dark, dark feeling. And I, I was scared. I didn't know what was going on. It was, I was, I was doing jujitsu a lot, like twice a day. And I started having the freeze response on the mats and um, my coach noticed other people noticed my breathing got staggered and, uh, you know, I couldn't breathe. I had friends tell me like, dude, breathe. What are you doing? Why are you holding your breath? And even now I take a breath, you know, um, went to go see my, my buddy's, uh, therapist. He, he introduced me to therapy. He, um, he's a really cool dude. He's a DEA agent, total badass. And he said, Hey man, I, I, I want you to go see my therapist. I'm like, wait, what you, you're men don't see therapists. What's going on? You know, he's like, no, dude, don't be an idiot. Like, you know, you're going to hurt yourself if you don't. And so it just blew the doors off that, you know, um, wow. So I went and saw him and you know, I started going through the symptoms of what I was feeling and, um, he had me do some, some cool techniques to get it out of my body. And eventually I had this like flashback of going back to an early childhood trauma event. Um, and I didn't know that I was in a flashback. The therapist saw it. And I looked down at my shirt after he kind of brought me back to my body and it was drenched in tears, like just drenched in tears. Right. I had no idea I was crying. I was visualizing this event 
Um, and then he, he did this brilliant, it was like just a brilliant toggling of we're in the present. Now we're going to go back to the past and I'll come back to the present. Right. And, uh, man, I, I grieved a lot. Um, I grieved a lot after that. It, oof, it was like abdominal grief, right? Just like crying for my core, um, for a few weeks after that. But then it brought me to a new level of realization and awareness. Um, I can now do jujitsu basically without flashbacks, without any issues, but it took year. It took years. Like this isn't days or weeks or months. It took years. Right. And it's still a process. And I still have to be honest about it because I could have a flashback. I could have something happen. And there it's important for me to have vocabulary, to have words, to explain to people, those that I trust, right? Hey, I'm stuck. I'm stuck in a situation. I need you to help me out of it. Right. Um, remind me to breathe. I'm just going through this thing real quick. It's like maintenance mode now. Um, and it's, there's still ugly parts of my attitude or life that will reflect that early trauma that I need to still trim out. It's like weeds that continually grow. I'll see a behavior, a knee jerk reaction where I'm like that. Nope. Don't do that. Like that's, that's me projecting on someone or that's me trying to emote a feeling state incorrectly, right? Maladaptively. And I have to coach myself like a child because it happened when I was a child to say, Hey man, take a breath, reread the situation, go apologize for that reaction or, you know, own or own, own what's going on inside of you. It's not them. Um, your brain is just, it's, it's hypervigilant, you know? And what's cool about that is I don't shame myself anymore. I very much appreciate you sharing all of this and being very personal as well. Absolutely. And the irony of that is men are also more apt to committing suicide and following through with it. And that's what I want to tell the male community is I get it. You know, we can be tougher. We could be um, stoic on the outside and all of that. And there's, I, there's places and times where that's appropriate. But when it comes to them killing themselves, like these 13 men from my friend's unit who committed suicide, I'd want to hug every single one of them and say, don't do it. You're, you're, you're worth getting this out of you, getting it out of you in a different way. Um, and that's so important to, to help people understand that they're allowed to grieve because when they do it, it neutralizes the, the emotional aspect of that memory. It, it downregulates it. It, it turns the volume down on the intensity. It'll always be there, whatever that trauma was, whatever that pain is, but it won't be overwhelming because our nervous system has then reallocated that memory and restored the data in a different way. Um, but going back to what I was saying about shame, I can now tell myself, and this is the message I give to others, because if I'm able to love myself, then I can love other people. So what I tell myself is there's no shame in, in grieving. There's no shame in crying. There's no shame in an emotion because it's data, it's information. And we're biological organisms with neurocircuitry. This is about the neuroscience of our brains. This isn't about you're weak or you're strong or whatever it is. I've seen some of the strongest people talk very tough and then have a mental breakdown. I mean, have to get driven to a hospital with a psychiatric break because they yelled at someone else and said, don't ever complain about depression in me. Don't ever complain about suicidality. You know, you're, you need to be tougher than that. Look out, look how tough I am. Like you understand the stuff I've been through. And then you find out through the grapevine, Hey, did you know so-and-so had a psychiatric break? And it's like, well, common sense would say that they're hurting. That's why they're hurting someone else. So they should probably get help for that hurt. It's not just going to go away. It's decades later and that hurt is still there. 
So it need there needs to be intentionality to heal. I really appreciate you speaking in sort of scientific terms. Uh, I always struggle personally with remembering the different parts of the brain. So I am more of that feeling kind of a therapist. I can feel, I can get in touch with someone's emotions. I can feel the emotions. I just don't remember all the brain parts, you know? So I really enjoyed that part. No, that's cool. I appreciate the compliment, but that's a part of my defense mechanism too, by the way. Um, because I didn't want to feel feelings. I couldn't feel feelings. I self-medicated for so much of my life because of some trauma that I experienced. And, um, including there's a, um, an event I talk about in the book a little bit. I don't share too many details, but, um, I was in college when I first started as a freshman, I was, uh, sexually assaulted and it's weird to talk about. It's so weird hearing myself say that. Um, but I need to admit it because it it's healing for me. And I, my medication, my self-medication shot up through the roof after that event. I needed to drink six, seven days a week. Um, I, I couldn't be around people without ooh, feeling some sort of numbness. Right. And, um, and so when I did see a therapist, he told me like, Hey, look, you haven't felt feelings in a long time. And, um, you're very cerebral, you're very analytical, but it's, you're using it as a way of understanding stuff academically but you're too scared to feel it. And he basically warned me like you feeling your feelings, it's, it's basically entering in to a feeling of death. A, 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 um, it's like a funeral, you know, because you're grieving your innocence. You're grieving a past part of yourself that's gone now, but it's not gone forever because that's where reintegration comes to play. You reintegrate those pieces of yourself that somebody took away or that you lost or whatever happened, right? You can bring those parts back to you and, and become your authentic self. So that's, that's where my journey has been is just trying to piece together myself, own my idiosyncrasies, own my, my weirdness, right? Be myself and with authenticity, help other people. Right. Um, but it's, it's a messy process. It's a bloody process. There's tons of failure involved, but that's growth. That's life. I mean, who, who in this world can, can just wake up and be perfect and never have an issue, never stub their toe. I mean, it's come on. Barbie. Uh, yeah. It's, it's just, it's, you know, it's marketing, right? It's marketing yeah. that we need to be a certain way. And that's, that's the death of our society is telling people you need to be a highlight reel. You need to be tough all the time. You have to be this, you have to be that. It's like, just let us be authentic. Let us be genuine. And again, going back to the, the primal instincts that we have, you feel synergy with somebody who is authentic and who is genuine. When they are disingenuine and inauthentic, you'll experience cognitive dissonance because the left brain and right brain will dissociate. The right brain will have that emotional feeling state of something is off. I think they're, they're maybe passive aggressive or they're withholding something. There's something off that's just different. It doesn't feel right, but the left brain will just follow the logic. You know, it's, it's like somebody passive aggressively saying something to you, your left brain hears their words because it's logic, but the right brain says, Hey, that felt like an attack. And what's so wrong, what's abuse is when the person who does this says, oh, you're just sensitive. They gaslight them, right? They say, that's, you're just off. It's you that's off. Um, I'm sorry, but neurocircuitry doesn't lie. 
it's that it's rarely wrong in my opinion and from the research that i've looked at it's people who then get others to think well maybe they're right right and that's and that happened to me um i was told you know you're never going to talk about this you're never going to tell anybody about this um how you know it's shameful if you ever mention this stuff that you experienced in life and that's all fear-based orientation that would then drive me into isolation and then guess what happens when you're isolated from the world stuck in those thoughts i mean suicide becomes a quote like logical option it's not correct but it seems logical to the brain to say i can't escape i can't open my mouth and ask for help i'm drowning alone and that's that's it's a nightmare and so i think like shining a laser beam through that darkness to cut through all the bs is to tell people about their biology about their brain i mean we need a user manual for the most complex computing system in the universe that's inside of our heads uh so anything we can do to educate people is so powerful so thank you for what you do by the way we thank you. I'm so glad that research is supporting the gut feeling now because I relate to having someone just invalidate uh, my feelings. And then after years and years of therapy, suddenly now my gut feeling is so loud. It's I can't even ignore it. It's completely, it's a full body experience for me. And kind of when people invalidate your gut feeling, it's like you kind of turn the volume down a little bit until you can't even tell, okay, am I hearing... It's like, it's like white noise. I can't tell what's my gut feeling, what's anxiety. And I was curious, how did jujitsu help you work through these symptoms and these experiences that you had? Yeah, so what happened with jujitsu was, hmm, wow. Yeah, so what happened with jujitsu was getting on the mats, right, is very physical, it's tactile, and you're dealing with life and death. You're dealing with primal survival parts of your body, like your jugular, right, your carotid artery. People are squeezing on those, literally cutting blood supply to your brain. You could die within, you know, a few seconds if they don't let go. And you're trusting these people. They become your brothers and sisters, right? You're a family, you're a tribe. And so what happened is um, I had a massive, uh, you know, I had adrenaline, right, tons of adrenaline. But then I had, what really happened was I got stuck in a positive feedback loop. Positive meaning I had adrenaline in my body and then a memory would come up of a feeling state, but it was so subconscious, I didn't remember it in my higher mind. I just, I felt it viscerally. Mm -hmm. But then that adrenaline would cause more adrenaline and more adrenaline and more adrenaline. And then I had a, a, an adrenaline dump basically. And it became sort of like a panic disorder because um, my brain was saying, you know, the tiger's chasing you, the tiger's chasing you, but there was no tiger. So then I'm hypervigilant, like, well, there's a threat, but it's invisible. So what do you do when it's an invisible threat? I mean, you're just even more hypervigilant, right? And so that would happen. And people noticed my coach was like, why are you being so weird? Like, what are you doing? Stop freezing up, do the move, do the move. And it was a freeze response. And what I learned in therapy was when abuse happens to you when you're young, um, and there's so many different types of trauma and depending on the developmental stage, but what happened to me in particular, my motor responses were shut off completely. I was stuck in a freeze response as a young, young kid. And so in my adult body, in my thirties, I still didn't have an, an offensive motor response, meaning get off of me, get away from me, push, right? Fight, claw to, to escape. I dissociated as a child. I shut down and I 
you know, it, it just, man, it's so, yeah. Wow. So <laughs> deep breath. So, um, yeah. jujitsu brought that out and I was able to either walk away entirely and never do it again and never feel that again, or go through the grief process, go through therapy, get a counselor to walk alongside me, have a social support group that loved me through this process and then work, work that out. And it, it was intense. It was an intense process, but, um, and I, and I will say this, I understand why people want to numb out. I would, I would never shame someone for, for wanting to be on drugs, for wanting to be drunk, for wanting to be numb, because as a survivor of abuse, I can tell you that it's hell going back through those corridors that we shut out in our, in, in our hearts and our minds and to force, you can't force anybody to re-experience that because they have to re-experience those traumas. They have to re-experience those flashbacks through exposure therapy and, and then throttle it and, you know, and re, re, uh, reframe it, right. Reappraise it. And that takes a lot of work to do. Um, and so I don't ever want anyone to feel ashamed of the addictions that they have of the self-medicative processes, um, because those addictions may have saved you from going insane. But again, you deserve a, a healthy life. You know, you deserve a life. And this is me speaking to my younger self where I'm not self-abusing to keep up that cycle of somebody else who taught me that I'm, I need to be abused. Right. Cause then I basically did the work for them. And again, when we're talking like service members on top of war, having to do that as well, cause a lot of service members experienced ACEs. A lot of service members come into the military, having experienced abuse and sexual abuse and traumas of all sorts. And then you throw in the warfare on top of that. My goodness. Um, it's mm -hmm. again, I wrote this book to, to help shine a light because they deserve it. We're so glad that you had the courage to, you know, go to therapy, which is so hard, especially um, from what I've seen anecdotally with men. It's there's like an aversion to it. I mean, I have family members that are like, oh, no, I don't need therapy, you know. And met, earlier you mentioned uh, your friend saying you should go see my therapist. Did you have kind of like preconceived notions towards therapy? And if so, like, how did you break through that? I was taught, and I think, yeah, I think the male ego, right, struggles with a lot of pride, but um, I mean, basically all, all humans have ego defensive behaviors. But what yeah. the thing is, um, I was taught, I was told explicitly uh, after being hurt and being abused, uh, you know, you, you won't ever tell anyone about this. You know, you don't ever tell anybody what happened. That was deep because that's, that's um, psychological abuse also, right? that's spiritual abuse to tell people like, you know, God's going to punish you for this or whatever it is. And so that, how much more so does that compound the insanity of the situation? And so to be told that, um, I thought going to a therapist would mean again, the death of me in a lot of ways it was, but in a good way, meaning death of the, the ego defensive behaviors the death of like the narcissistic self, the, the self that was so image oriented or so compelled to follow what an abuser would tell me I need to be, right? That part of me needed to die off because that wasn't my true self. It was a facade. And, um, but that's how it felt going to therapy. I remember just the shame resonating that says, you're about to tell somebody this, you're about to expose 
what happened to you? Like, how dare you say this stuff to somebody else? Right. I remember feeling that and, uh, gosh, it was so much pride and so much ego and so much self uh, defensiveness, but I realized my back was against a wall and there is a chance that I could hurt myself, whether I self-medicate to a point where I die. Cause I know friends who've done that. I have college peers who've not woken up. Um, I knew it was life and death. I knew it was life and death for me. And I've seen that in the eyes of soldiers I've worked with. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I can feel it because I know where I was stuck and thank goodness. Thank God. I had, I had friends who loved me enough to say, we want you to get help because we don't want to lose you, you know? And, uh, yeah, it was, it was rad. Um, still friends. I mean, for the rest of my life, I'll have these friends, you know, we're still in touch and it's been, it's been years. Um, but yeah. That's so Oof. awesome. Real, <laughs> yes. real yes. awesome people. Yeah. <sighs> yes. Such a, such a great book and, and such a great story. And so, and thank you so much again for sharing all of this, you know, that takes a lot of guts. Thank you for giving us a voice, you know. What would you say to soldiers that are stuck under leadership above them that they really can't stand or they disagree with? Well, I think every organization has, has, you know, potential for good and bad leadership, right? And I want to say that there are some amazing leaders in the military who have amazing hearts. Um, and that's why I wrote my book. This book is centered on folks in the military who were absolutely well-balanced and had equanimity and love in their hearts and were open and transparent people. And so I wrote this book to focus on the positive leaders in the military, but I also put in the educational facets on what toxic leadership looks like, on what, what it looks like when you have counterproductive leadership. And it, like you said, it's because they have subconscious states of resentment or inadequacy that they're dealing with and they want to project that on those they work with. And so I write a lot about this in the book, but I'll, I'll say this. If you're, first of all, if you're in a situation where there's something illegal going on or there's abuse or, you know, we've seen what happens on military bases, right? Well, there needs to be investigations. Believe it or not, there are actual like methodologies out there that you can put in a com comment that's not, it could be anonymous or it could not be anonymous, but it will be read by higher ups and civilians who will make sure that you know, the military leaders or whoever it is, aren't trying to withhold information. So what I'm saying is this, do not hide your voice. If there's something where legit, it's going to be life and death, or there's harassment that needs to be brought up because these men and women deserve better than that. Um, if it's not to that point where there's not illegal things going on, but yet there is decreased morale and there is, you know, abuse of authority, but it's done in a way where they're not crossing any lines that would yield an investigation. I would say first thing is find social support in that group or outside that group. I mean, I'd say when I say inside the group, make sure you, you care for others in that situation because you're probably not the only one hurting. Um, but also find sources outside of the unit that you can vent to, whether it's family or friends, people you trust, because you need to get those feelings out. Um, Self-care is so important because the more you're getting drained, the more you got to recharge your batteries. So you got to find ways that recharge your soul, um, minimize contact with abusive people as much as possible. Always have dig dignity and respect, even for abusive people and authority, but keep it there. 
keep it very professional, have brevity, and then leave. As it, think of it as radiation. Um, mm. You know how like, um, not cardiologists, what is it called? When you're, when you're uh, um, working like with radiation as like an x-ray tech, radiologist, they have these tags that show them the cumulative radi radiation they're taking over their entire career. After mm -hmm. they hit a certain saturation point, they have to retire, they have to leave because their body was impacted by too many free radicals. So think of toxic people the same way. You can be around this person for 30 seconds, 15 seconds, five minutes, and then you gotta bounce. Mm -hmm. And if you're stuck, it could be anything from just get them out of your peripheral vision, get them where you can't hear their voice, you got to find ways to create boundaries. In the military, this is so tough. It's so tough because you're stuck in the field with certain people. You're stuck in close quarter situations with certain people. So get creative with creating healthy boundaries. Um, and then ideally, you can get out of that situation. They're the most ideal situation is you get them therapy and they grow, right? They become a healthier person. They they buy your book, right? <laughs> I want to yeah. I want to do a drive by where I take my book and just chuck it at people. That, yes. <laughs> anyway, um, but uh, but again, I wrote this book because I myself was a toxic person earlier in life. You know, self medicating, dissociating, uh, passive aggressive. So I, I got to be honest. Like, if I joined the military back in the day. I would have been a horrible leader because I was on survival mode. And so I would have used people, you know, but anyway, um, I would say self-care is the biggest thing. And I, I just looked it up on the internet, different ways of self-care. There's so many ways that you can do it for yourself. So I would take salt baths, um, by candlelight so to downregulate my brain and to help, you know, secrete melatonin. So I could go to bed. Um, I would be very, very intentional about the friends that I had in my life. Um, there's a wonderful quote from a James Dean movie, I think Rebel Without a Cause, where his father said, uh, hey son, remember, don't let your friends choose you, you choose your friends. And um, that was so powerful to me because I could find the people who brought peace into my life, who recharged me and fueled me. So then when I go back around people who were tough to be around, I, I was just that much more robust. You know what I'm saying? Um, and you can tell the difference. Then, yeah. And yeah. I'll, I'll say this one more thing. Okay. This is a brilliant thing you could do. Find out if, if you're really nerdy, like me, try to look up psychological criteria, definitions of what this person does. That's abusive. And then what you can do is I would create a notes file in my phone where let's say I put, um, person X is, um, like super narcissistic and condescending in this sort of way, I would put out a bullet list of what they do to be toxic, to have their criteria, kind of have their, their modus operandi. Like it's like knowing your enemy, right? And then anytime I was around them, I would know within 30 seconds, they're gonna dog whistle, they're gonna <laughs> gaslight, they're gonna condescend. And lo and behold, they play to that exact psychological script. And then I was able to externalize all of their bad behavior, right? Because that behavior, it says nothing about me. I'll always remember somebody's words to you, like to your face, it really psychologically says more about them than it does about you. It really does in a lot of ways. It's just like that concept of you point a finger, you got three fingers pointing back at you, if you will, if you look at your hand when you point your index finger. So remember that when a leader is toxic, you got to externalize their behavior. It is not yours to carry. That is their crap to carry. 
that is their burden. Um, and they're allowed to have it because they're human and, and Lord knows what trauma they experienced, but it is not yours to carry. And there's ways of conducting yourself professionally where you can make it extremely clear to them. Like, I will not play your games. And if you got to leave the organization. Mm-hmm. Or you can send the list to them, right? <laughs> <laughs> Just by mistake, click. <laughs> I learned uh, I learned from therapy with, uh, with certain people in my life that I tried to tell about therapy, right? They blew up. I mean, they went mm-hmm. ballistic. They were just like, how dare you? Or well, this is you. You're screwed up in the head, blah, blah, blah. Just all this stuff, right? And I'm just like, oh, Lord, I was just having a dis... Like, there was no emotion in it. It was just this honest talk, right? And uh, what I learned from, from therapy is you can't ever force somebody to be self-aware. That's like bringing them out of a cave and telling them to open their eyes. Like, mm-hmm. they are going to squint. Their eyes are going to burn from the sunlight. And I'm not trying to say like, oh, I'm on this holy mountaintop and I'm so, what, but, but it's honestly. But are you right now in the back, there's the beach. And uh, <laughs> so you're on the, somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I love the sunshine. I love the yes. ocean. It's my, yeah. it's my healing place, but yeah. you know, it's, it's so important to, yeah, it sucks. Cause you want people to grow, right? You want leaders to grow, but you gotta, I want to say, be patient with them. But look, I mean, if they're a, a real, a, a, the definition of a toxic person is somebody that says, I will not, he, I will not um, acknowledge my mistakes. I've done nothing wrong. You've done it. You made me hurt you. You made me abuse you. This is, this is evil stuff to tell somebody like you made me, ab- are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. But those are the people that are toxic. And there's honestly, there's no hope for them in the sense of this. It's their pride to dismantle. We cannot dismantle someone else's pride. We have to hope and pray that they dismantle their own pride. Because if they don't, they will weaponize their words. They will weaponize their leadership power, right? They'll weaponize their rank. They will weaponize everything subconsciously, psychologically, because they're afraid and they're scared. And um, that's why I love the complexity of psychology. Cause I always say, and I'll put this in the book. It is a constellation of variables. You know how there's like millions of stars in the sky, billions of stars. I mean, that's the, the, the synaptic connections in the brain are in the trillions, if not more, I believe. And so the number of variables of emotions and feelings and memories and neurotransmitters, it's complex. This is huge. But it all boils down to a very simple phrase, you know, treat others how you would want to be treated. Mm. And with that, I believe, is the entire recovery journey, the mental health journey, is by having that that posture, if you will. That's where neuroplasticity does miracles for the brain. And if you're a leader, you owe it to the people that you lead to better yourself. Because the more stable we are as individuals, we're going to be stable to other people. It's, it's universal. It applies. And uh, the, the less chaotic our inner worlds are, it's the less chaos we're putting out in the world. And it's just, to me, it's the counter. We're countering entropy, you know, psychologically speaking. We're, we're bringing, we're, we're putting things into order in our minds and reintegrating so others feel safe around us, feel enabled, feel enriched and invigorated and inspired to then better themselves. And then it's a domino process, you know, 
And it's so incredible the impact a leader has on such a big group of people. And I mean, it could go either way. You could negatively impact them or positively. But if you positively, each one of those people are hopefully going to go out and then impact more people positively. So leaders carry so much responsibility. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, leadership culture, we call it command climate. There's, I wrote a chapter about that in the book. But uh, the quote from my friend Will is that you command climate will make or break a unit and you can't really change it. However, the leader's temperament is you're stuck with that leader. Mm -hmm. Um, But you, so you could have a really amazing command climate or you could have toxic command climate. Um, Not necessarily extremes always. Right. But I mean, that's kind of how to think about it. And um, anyway, yeah, I could ramble for days. So that's why I wrote a 400 page (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much again for writing the book and sharing. And are there any last uh, maybe quote or wisdom that you would like to share with the listeners? Of course, other than buying the book and reading. My buddy, uh, Mm -hmm. JP Lane, he he was blown up by an IED and lost uh, both of his legs. And when people thank him for his service, he says, you're worth it. And I told him, I was like, hey, bro, I need to steal that phrase because that is one of the most powerful phrases I've ever heard in my life. And um, maybe it speaks to me because of the stuff I experienced younger in my life, you know, but I would tell people who are struggling, you're worth it. You're worth growth and you're worth healing and restoration. You're worth your mental health. Um, Don't, don't feel ashamed of yourself. Don't feel stuck and trapped. Um, I mean, it's, it's biology, it's neurobiology, it's neurophysiology of your brain, but you're worth understanding how to overcome that. And, uh, I think once we kind of accept our worthiness, as tough as that is, um, we're able to get honest with ourselves, you know, real honest. And uh, wow, I could I could talk forever about this, but I would say, you know, don't don't end your life. And it could be micro suicides, as I'd like to call it, like you know, drinking too much, driving drunk, um, mm-hmm. playing with certain medications and maybe doing too much at certain times. I think people, you know, can almost live out that death wish because I've seen it in friends, party, party, party until somebody overdoses, doesn't wake up. And then you realize how long they've been towing that line. And then it begs the question, what were they hurting from? What were they medicating from? And why is it one night they did too much? You know, so you're worth finding out what's going on in your life and you're worth overcoming it. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you for what you do.